This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. I, I can't imagine there's too many people out there that don't use social media in some form these days, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it might be. But research by academics here at Penn and at Michigan State University show that the well-being of your community can be determined through the postings on social media. Johannes Eichstad is a doctoral student in the Department of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. He is also founding research scientist of the World Wellbeing Project, and he was a part of this, and we welcome him into the studio. Great to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I guess, like we were saying, like everything in our lives, what we see and what we view through social media and the Internet really does play an important role in, in this type of research. Uh, it does, yeah. As people are more and more migrating towards social media for their social lives, um, social media increasingly becomes the platform of researchers to understand social trends, to understand psychological trends, to understand public health threats, um, and it has been now for a number of years. How big were these studies? Um, there's a number of different studies we've carried out. Um, over Facebook, the sample sizes are sort of in, to the order of 100,000 um, 100, people, that mm -hmm. is. Twitter, it's not as we don't parse it by users. We parse it by total tweet volume. Mm -hmm. um, in our Twitter data set, we started with a billion tweets. Um, so that's probably a sample size in terms of people in the tens of millions. And so you went to the people specifically to get a lot of this data, not you didn't go through Facebook or Twitter to accumulate this data. Um, <coughs> Facebook and Twitter are two very, very different cases. So let's talk about Facebook first. Mm -hmm. um, Facebook, we got permission from every single user to use their statuses. They had to sign the usual, are you okay to share this data with the app mm -hmm. that Facebook gives you? And after that, you had to come on a landing page that we had designed that said, look, we're researchers, we're carrying out this research. Here's the number you can call if you want your data deleted. Mm -hmm. Here's the ethical review board you can you might want to contact if you have any doubts. Are you okay with this? Yes, no. And then if they said yes, then we de-identified the data. So it made it impossible for us to see their user IDs mm -hmm. or anyone on our team. And then with this de-identified uh, data set that had given informed consent, um, we then carried out the research. So how did you, I mean, this was obviously, these were the Facebook posts or the tweets from people. So how did you take that, those specific tweets and, and kind of be able to gauge a person's, you know, their, their, their level of personality or their psychological background? So um, in, the, in the original sample, what we did is in, this, in the same process to which we, obtained their statuses, which was an app within Facebook. We also gave them a survey, or rather our collaborators at the Psychometric Center at the University of Cambridge gave them a gold standard personality survey. Personality is sort of the golden construct of psychology. It's something that um, in psychology there's very little consensus, mm -hmm. arguably because there's not a lot at stake always. Mm -hmm. um, but personality, the five-factor construct of personality is something that people agreed on about 20 years ago. So there are gold standard questionnaires that tap this construct. And what we did is we had people fill out the survey, and at the same time, we collected their language. And then once you have tens of thousands of 
response sets mm-hmm. like this of both <coughs> server responses and language, you can then say, okay, what are the features of language that are most predictive of certain personality traits? Mm-hmm. For example, for the for the personality trait of extroversion, the word party is the most frequent word that distinguishes <laughs> people who are extroverted. <laughs> that would seem to make sense, wouldn't it? It's it's funny. It always makes sense after the fact. Yeah. Right? When you look at it, you say, yeah, okay, I, I could have told you so. But the truth is you couldn't have. No, but absolutely, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of other things you could have told me. So um, psychologists think about this in terms of face validity. So the results are face valid, but they're not really inferable from anything we had before. So you mentioned party being one word for extroverts. What's another word that kind of surmised another group of people? Um, for introversion, it's the word internet and computer. Um, Why so? That's, that's well, interesting. It, it, so there's also a lot of sort of Japanese words like anime and manga and emojis, sort okay. of Japanese culture. So what it is is a particular interaction between the very computer-savvy sample we have mm-hmm. and how introversion is expressed in that sample. So the Facebook-savvy introvert is somebody who spends a lot of time on the computer and then uh, writes about it. That's interesting. So uh, then obviously in, in this world of social media that we have right now, a lot of people use the emoticons mm-hmm. a, as part of their speech that they go through. Yeah. Is there anything that, that, that ties in with you know, people adding happy faces to, to their messages or you know, some of the other aspects that, that are tied into social media? It turns out <clears throat> emoticons are highly predictive of certain things. Um, uh, certainly... Um, there are frowny faces are generally, predictively speaking, at a population level associated with neuroticism. Neuroticism is a tendency towards negative emotionality, emotional reactivity, being grumpy, being sort of hard to be around. Um, And and those people spike in their use of frowny faces. Um, That seems seems fairly sort of benign and cute and perhaps obvious. Um, Let me give you another one. The most predictive... Language feature, the most predictive emoticon, it turns out, of being female, as opposed to male self-identified, is the heart character. So less than three, that little heart symbol. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so more women will use the heart symbol than, than men will. That is right, yes. And it, huh. it's to the point that if you only had one piece of information to identify as to whether somebody's male or female you'll want to know the number of their heart characters and their statuses. Huh, that's very interesting. There were a couple, uh, when I was looking through the research and the articles that that, uh, that were about your research, there were a couple that, that stood out, and I wanted to get your reaction to them. One, which unfortunately kind of ties to me, right. is, is that uh, people that are more emotionally stable referred more to social activities or athletic events which probably you could get about 5 million people here in the Philadelphia area to talk about sporting events. Um, yeah, but it's not just sporting events as in things you watch on TV. Okay. It's a lot of group sports that you partake in yourself, such okay. as volleyball okay. and, and um, Or maybe ev- events that your kids are in. And events that your kids are in, even though we control for age. So I have, I have reason to believe that that's not the case. That okay. is actually a um, unique signal to emotional stability. Emotional stability is sort of opposite of neuroticism. Hmm. It's well-adjusted. It's um, living a calm, chill, well-adjusted life. And the other thing, actually, in that um, set of language that determines emotional stability is being connected to something larger than yourself. There being dimensions of meaning in your life. In an American sample, which is 90% Christian, it's often references to a Christian God Hmm. or the Psalms or (coughs) other entities from the Bible. So being connected to something larger than yourself, having physical activity, in particular in group sports, 
doing something with people you care about, connection, keeps you emotionally stable. I mean, yeah. there was another one which I I I found just unbelievable. They they and you may even know which one I'm talking to. That that high IQs are tied to people that like curly fries. Um, <laughs> that was our colleagues' research, okay. not our research. Okay. Um, um, yeah, there was a famous study where they used <clears throat> Facebook likes yeah. to predict personality. One of the pitfalls of using the heavy-duty statistical algorithms that we use, um, which is sort of referred to as machine learning, it's the modern generation of pattern recognition, it's the reason why you can talk to Siri in your iPhone and she sure. understands you, yeah. is this last generation of pattern recognition algorithms. And um, these algorithms are sometimes do sometimes have a black box character, so they have a magic to them. Um, that you can't really examine in their parts. And the curly fries example got a lot of flack for being an example of throwing a black box statistical package at a at a scientific problem and then it being only interpretable in parts. One of the things that, that you brought up or uh, was brought up in, in some of the research was that there is an interest by, by governments to find a, how happy the, the people are in their in their communities. Yes. Yeah, this is this is um, a larger trend that had started about now. Well, it started early on about ten years ago, and then in early two thousand thirteen, the OECD, Organization for Economic Collaboration and Development, published a white paper admonishing national offices of statistics to measure the well-being of nations. Um, this is a long trend behind this. Um, Sir Richard Layard in England has been driving this in England. Um, there's uh, programs now at the United Nations. There's a uh, General Assembly resolution in the works mm -hmm. to suggest to countries that beyond GDP, it might be worth measuring different forms of well-being. Because the point is, for a highly industrialized nation, the GDP was developed based on the idea that there is a linear relationship between increase in wealth and increase in well-being. And that is generally true as long as you're satisfying basic needs. Right. Housing, <clears throat> education of your children, food, transportation. As long as those things are on the table, that equation works mostly. But then, as it's famous in the literature, but then there is this kink in the graph where the where the relationship levels off. In the U.S., this is about at eighty thousand mm -hmm. dollars. So beyond eighty thousand dollars of median family income, you no longer really see a strong relationship between additional income and the well-being the self-identified well-being of the family. Um, this is one of the reasons why when what we really care about is that the people of the country do well, we should do that directly. We should measure that directly. We should attend to that directly right. as opposed to a faulty proxy um, that in many ways the GDP is. The GDP doesn't care about the nature of transactions in society. Sure. Ambulances add to the GDP. Crime can add to the GDP. The Gulf oil spill from a couple of years ago, sure. $40 billion to GDP. So the GDP is not really the, the one-trick pony that you would like it to be. It's, right. it's one index among many. And we've been working, and other people have been working, to convince governments to take on some of these other indices. Now, the it's extremely difficult to suggest this unless you can <coughs> suggest a cost-effective way of measuring that. Right. right? So <coughs> one of the pitches that we've taken, and perhaps the founding intention of our project was to use social media to lever leverage social media to supply some of these population level indices it's probably using social media is probably the easiest way to kind of get a true feel 
for what people feel like in a in a large kind of sector these days because of the availability of it and the want to use it. It's probably the two biggest factors. Um, the penetration of social media over the past few years has been incredible. Something like half of the U.S. population now are active monthly users on Facebook. Yeah. Um, th there's something like the, the daily tweets are now in the billions. So whereas perhaps 10 years ago it was a novelty, five years ago it was sort of an annoyance for researchers, right. now it's pretty clear that the next generation of big data sets that you can use for population health come from come from these sources. So then the, it, it seems fairly obvious that we are going to see more uh, more use by the government of this type of data because it, it is the best way to be able to kind of gauge what your population is, is thinking, whether they're happy, whether they're not happy. And uh, it, there would seem to be a, an easy, I, I would think, correlation to GDP from there. Um, yes. I mean, I would differentiate two different classes of government applications. So okay. on the one hand, you have, on the one hand, you have offices like the National um, Bureau of Labor Statistics, American <coughs> Community Service Centers for Disease Control, scientists employed by the government. Those mm -hmm. people move slowly, as they should, because they're scientists. Th those people are very unlikely to switch health population service that are carried out through representative phone samples mm -hmm. to so social media. On the other hand, you have the intelligence community. And the intelligence community has done what we're doing, I would think, about 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Sure. This is baby potatoes for the intelligence <laughs> community. The The budgets that the intelligence community has thrown at population surveillance through these, me through these methods is to the order of 100, if not 1,000-fold of what we will spend on this right. as, as a research project um, or even the research community at large. And I don't think that comes as a surprise to, to a lot of Americans, knowing what the background is has been, and obviously what we're seeing from uh, from the government asking for, you know, data from Facebook and all the social media sites right now. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's hard to believe that the NSA would not care about this information. If I can read your emails, I want to read your emails, but shy sure. of that, reading your Facebook messages and Facebook posts give me a pretty good estimate. In terms of uh, of the the data that you collected from Facebook and Twitter, mm -hmm. there would seem to be, in terms of other venues and ways to gather that data in the past, when you're talking with people or having them fill out a questionnaire about you know their state, there could have been a level of not being 100% truthful in the past. Is it less that the case now that you're talking about information that they have put out it's already out there, and, mm -hmm. and obviously they're not thinking about whether they're being honest or not at the time that they're doing it. Um, it's not easier. It's different. Okay. So, so with surveys, you you worry about things like response biases. Okay. Will the person always tick the fourth box on the left just sure. to get this over with? Sure. On social media, because it's a social medium, it's an environment in a social environment of things being valued. So we start worrying about social desirability biases. You want yourself to be approved of mm -hmm. by your peers, by the people you're connected with on Facebook. So as a result, you might selectively present the presentation, the, the information about your life to your peers in such a way that they respond favorably. So yeah. in a US sample in particular, this ends up meaning that um, negative emotion is suppressed when you're not feeling so well, when you're not doing so well. Yeah. 
um, as well as when things are not going well professionally. So when you have the sort of lack of accomplishment. Yeah. So signal like, oh, today was a total failure or I tried this today, this was a total flop and I'm, you know, dispirited. That information tends to be suppressed in terms of missing um, from from these data sets. Now, fortunately, this is a systematic concern. This sort of these social desirability processes is something that all the users go through. Mm -hmm. So if an entire sample does the same thing, the variation within the sample remains interpretable. I know this is a complicated thought, but it's something that psychologists have grappled with for a long time and yeah. it's something that our algorithms can in some sense account for. So for us, the absence of positive language can stand in for negative language. And we're talking with Johannes Eichstadt, who is a doctoral student here at the University of Pennsylvania in the Department of Psychology, involved in uh, a couple of studies that look into how social media can kind of gauge uh, your personality and whether you're happy or not. Uh, I, I guess then going off of what we were just talking about with the way that employers now look at a person's social media account, especially mm -hmm. when they're looking to hire mm -hmm. that person, yeah. then people will tend to be a little bit more protective of what they put on. And like you said, maybe not as, as forthright with a lot of their emotions. Yes, as they should be. I mean, if you think about it, this just carries on in the digital space, an ancient distinction between the public and the private. Mm. What you say to your friends around a campfire and what you want to be on your personal website are two different things. Um, so social media, the difficulty perhaps or the trickiness of managing a social media identity is that it exists at these interfaces between these different worlds. And some people uh, follow the safe route, mm -hmm. uh, which means they turn their Facebook into their LinkedIn, right? So sure. They, you post updates about your job and about your very predictable generic accomplishments. Yeah. Um, what you lose out is some of the functionality, the social functionality of Facebook. I wouldn't underestimate the extent to which many people are information and support seeking through Facebook. Like if you had a bad day and you feel like you have nobody to talk to and you can turn to Facebook and say, I had a really bad day, yeah. and you get 50 responses from everyone in the world who's ever cared about you, to some people that can mean a lot. Sure. So there's, there's layers of function um, within these social networks, and the trick is to manage them all. We talked a little bit about how the the language within these Facebook posts and tweets, obviously you, you were able to gather a lot of your information from that. Was there any aspect to it that the frequency of, of postings by people on Facebook or lack thereof was a factor in terms of their personality traits as well? Like if somebody is posting making 50 posts a day or 100 posts a day, obviously that's a lot, but 50 posts a day, or if they're only making one post every two weeks, was there anything that you could, did that factor into this at all? It did, yeah, it was part of our equations, but um, if I recall correctly, the effect wasn't that strong compared to some of the language features. Right. Um, I believe the strongest correlation we've seen is for extroversion. Okay. So people who are extroverted. Using the word party. Using the word party. Um, well, I mean, if you if you think about extroversion, extroversion on talking about it on a brain level is sort of the tendency to derive dopaminergic rewards from social interaction. So you get a you get a little reward kick in your brain yeah. uh, if you're extroverted from interacting with other people. So then people approach social media then in that in that spirit makes sense to me. And in some respects, there are you can 
if you're somebody that sees that on, I mean, I think I've got, you know, a couple people that I know that are on social media that you see those types of posts and you can kind of glean that that's their goal. That's why they're posting that stuff is to mm-hmm. kind of get that that personal gratification yeah. to yeah. to get that pump up for themselves. And if they get 50 people to say, wow, man, that's great. You're you're great. Then it just kind of boosts them as well. It boosts them as well, yeah. And it, it's sometimes it's obnoxiously transparent. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I got that. Yes, <laughs> um, but sometimes obnoxiously transparent is better than nothing. Right? Sure, for yeah, the, for these people. Yeah, yeah. But there's also a level of understanding, I guess, that some people have. If you see that and you understand, especially if you know the person and you know their personality. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, particularly few men will reach out in any sort of heartfelt capacity saying, hey, can I have a pat on the back? I'm feeling down today, right? <laughs> right. So you say, oh, you know, I completed some gardening. And then everybody says, ah, oh, good job. And, you know, you translate that into man code and you understand oh, I'm okay. But what are the biggest differences b- between men and women on, on social media? Um, so there's there's role expectations, stereotypical role expectations that are foregrounded more or less in the language of men and women. Mm-hmm. So men talk about sports, women talk about shopping, um, to some extent, I have to sort of give a disclaimer that this sort of this way of looking at it amplifies stereotype. It amplifies the perception of difference. Mm-hmm. So even if ninety eight percent of the language between men and women are the same, yeah, our analysis will disguise that and will will foreground the one and a half percent that are different and hence lead to an amplification of perception of stereotype. But uh, what distinguishes men most, now that I've given this long disclaimer, is cursing. So men in general are less agreeable hmm. as a personality trait. Okay. Yeah. Um, agreeable is exactly what you think it means. Yeah. Sort of the tendency to say yes, the absence of wanting to say no. Sure. Um, agreeable people talk about the good weather a lot and the awesome weekend they had. It's a very sort of benign pro-social attitude. Um, for... As to whether it's culturally constructed or not, I will leave aside, but it is an empirical fact that men curse more and sort of say things that seem disruptive to the social fabric. Yeah. yeah. There seems to be also a level of, I noticed this just you know going on and seeing the people that I know, that obviously there is that aspect that we talked about of the self-gratification mm-hmm. and of showing, you know, things that your kids did that were great and, and that thing. But there's also a, a very large segment, a large piece to what Facebook is that seems to be a level, the level of sarcasm uh, in terms of you will see a video online of something just absolutely stupid that happens and you will want to post it on Facebook and tweet it just to say, I can't believe somebody did this. Mm-hmm. And, and th- that seems to be that just like uh, – uh, it's almost it seems like about 25 to 30 percent of the posts i see are are those types of videos or those types of stories Mm -hmm. from a newspaper Mm -hmm. interesting and when we looked at this we came to about 10 percent or so yeah so maybe your friends are different than yeah just a little bit (laughs) people in our sample you know i run with i run with an unbelievable crowd (laughs) but it but but is that part of of how that played into your into your synopses of your of your studies so i've never seen sarcasm or irony or words that would indicate that um to come out as predictive results okay so what that then leads me to believe is that that is something that works through the entire sample in a systematic way in a way that it doesn't interact with our measurement sure right so if everybody does something in the same way 
if you're looking at interpersonal difference, you're not going to find it. It's a very interesting study. Thanks for coming by. Uh, My pleasure. What are you, are you working on now? Um, we're currently trying to see if we can detect depression in clinical populations using social media and replace some of the cumbersome screening mm. tools that hospitals use to detect depression. I would imagine that, that now that you've done this study and you're talking about depression, that there are just a wealth of, of areas that you could hopefully kind of delve into mm-hmm. using social media. Yes, yes, and we certainly are doing our best. We have something like 22 sub-projects now. Um, That's keeping you plenty busy. Yes, it is. Congratulations. All the best. And thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.